This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Adversaries have to be confronted. You cannot just say we want to be nice. You agree on where you must agree. You collaborate where you can, but where there's an adversary, you must be adversarial. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. Former Secretary of State James Baker played a large role in maintaining international order as he worked to establish U.S. dominance and leadership when the Cold War ended. Dr. Diana Villers-Negroponte has written about Baker's efforts in her new book about his career and legacy. It's called Master Negotiator. I spoke with her about lessons learned then and how they apply in today's world. Diana, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I really appreciate it. Beverly, I'm very pleased to be talking with you this morning. Well, I want to dive right into your book, Master Negotiator, and it's all about former Secretary of State James Baker and the end of the Cold War and his role in it. First and foremost, what made you want to write about Secretary Baker's role at the end of the Cold War specifically? Previous books that I had written had focused on the end of the Cold War and the end of violence in Central America. And that opened my eyes to the relationship between Moscow, Havana, and Washington. So I knew that if I was going to explore further the end of the Cold War, I had to broaden my perspective. But just writing a general history is pretty good for textbooks, but not for general readership. And so I decided to ask Secretary Baker if I could write his biography, and his answer was no. So I went back and I asked to write a slice of his biography, namely that period when he was Secretary of State, 1989-92. And he turned to me with a broad grin and said, Yes. And there I am. So now you know. Now we know. That leads me to ask you about the role of the Secretary of State and and specifically his role as Secretary of State. Did he have more or less influence than the people who followed him in that role, including up to today's Secretary of State? The role of Secretary of State depends upon the relationship with the President. In the case of James Baker, that relationship was so close based on 35 years of friendship. Competition on the tennis courts of the Houston Country Club, shared ambitions in electoral politics so that the two men could finish each other's sentences. Now, I believe that that same level of trust exists between President Biden and Antony Blinken. But it did not exist in many cases between presidents and their secretaries of state. But the critical reason for having this level of trust is that the secretary in his international dealings speaks for the president. If there is space, a gap, 
between the president and that secretary of state. Foreign interlocutors pick that up immediately. And a secretary of state gets less stuff done. And you also write in the book about Secretary Baker's relationships with friend and foe alike and the role that that played in allowing him to have so much influence both globally and being able to lead the United States in terms of shaping the global international order at the end of the Cold War. Can you speak a little more about that kind of relationship? Baker did not have close relationships with foreign leaders, but George W. Bush did have those relationships because you may recall that Bush attended the funerals of dead presidents around the world for President Reagan. He was his vice president. And therefore, the metaphor was, you die, I fly. And so Bush had this deep roller deck of leaders throughout the world whom he knew personally. He therefore could call and say, I'm sending my Secretary of State to meet with you to discuss. And that was useful. But I'm going to put in one a story here. In the case of Israel, President Bush and Yitzhak Shamir, the Prime Minister at the time in 1989, did not get on. There was no trust. Bush fundamentally questioned and disliked. So he handed it over to Baker and he said, Baker, I don't like this guy. I can't get anything done with this guy. You establish the relationship. And Baker did. Baker understood the political pressures that Yitzhak Shamir was under. And he sat down with him and he argued with him and he reached certain agreements with him. When I interviewed Baker in New York several years ago, I asked him again, did you trust Yitzhak Shamir? And his answer to me was, he never leaked. And that for him meant that he could reach an agreement and it would not end up in the front page of the newspapers a few days later. So this was a case of the president passing on to his secretary of state a relationship which was critical but was not easy. The word you mentioned there that I want to pull the string on is trust. And what is the lesson from the story you just told for leaders today when, according to surveys, there is very little trust? Well, trust depends on human relationships and it has to be built up. You don't create that trust on the first meeting. But there is a sense, and Baker created this by being tough, straightforward, and keeping his word. And therefore, he built up that trust and reputation to the point that Margaret Thatcher called him Mr. Fix It. She happened not to like Baker or even George H.W. Bush because they were Texans who wore boots instead of lace-up shoes. But she knew that Baker delivered 
and could be trusted because what he said and what he committed to, he implemented. At the time of the Cold War, at the time that it ended, President Bush led this charge to promote democracy abroad and wanted the U.S. to take the lead in establishing the international order. I mentioned that before. I want to delve into why that was so important at the time and what has happened in the ensuing years and how we've ended up in a place where there was great hope at the time that Russia would develop into a, a democratically led country. But that is certainly not where we are now in the minds of, of, of most people. Talk about that effort to promote democracy and why that was important and the lessons for today with what's going on globally right now. In 1988, the Polish people led by Lech Walesa began a series of protests and demands for participation in the Polish government that led to Poland asserting its independence from the Soviet Union and followed soon after in Hungary, in Czechoslovakia, in Romania at the end of the year, removing themselves from the sphere of the Soviet Union, declaring their independence and asserting their freedoms. It was the most exciting time because that reflected the disintegration of the Soviet power. Moscow had not sent in the troops as it had in 56 and 68, but had allowed East European to assert democracy self-determination and independence. It was a thrilling time. But the consequence of this was still unknown and it presented an uncertain global situation. What would happen if Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, etc., etc., having declared independence, then sought their own nuclear weapons, their own nuclear independence to negotiate or ally with Middle East leaders whose intent was to disrupt, if not to destroy, Western civilization. So while we look back at that period of 1990 to 1999 as a period of intense hope and independence, there existed at the time great fear. What does the stability of the Cold War, what follows that? And in this uncertainty which existed, George H.W. Bush and his team, including, remember, there is wonderful Brent Scowcroft, the retired general who was the National Security Advisor, and Baker, developed this idea of a new world order. Now, to be honest, no one really knew what it meant. But from Washington's point of view, it was democracy and it was free markets. And I would claim that those are still values, national interests, which we assert today. But that was possible because the Soviets were disintegrating. This power in Central Asia and on the eastern side of Europe was collapsing. And therefore, what was going to take its place and how should the US and the Europeans react to it? 
Thus this call for liberal democracy, free markets, and stability. But to circle back to the question of the lessons for today, that was the call, but yet Russia turned into something that is quite different from that. So how do you think Secretary Baker would engage Russia today? The engagement with powers which are not your allies is very important. And what occurs is the search for common interests. Now, for Baker, it was arms control, nuclear non-proliferation, and the open skies, which is that the right of each nation to fly over the territory of the other and to determine that the terms of arms control were being respected. Having reached agreement on mutually beneficial issues, the countries developed a practice of talking to each other. So let's take this to today. We are doing the same, and John Kerry, the special negotiator on climate change, spent three days in Moscow talking with the Russians about their common objectives and their common purpose as we approach the COP2 to be meeting to be held in November in Glasgow. It's again searching for common themes so that you talk to your erstwhile competitors, but also looking for cooperation. Does it make a difference that we see Russia launching into disinformation or misinformation campaigns that are intended to impact U.S. elections or U.S. society at large? Do we have to just overlook that in order to engage with them? No, we do not accept it. We are in an adversarial relationship with Russia over their spying, their interference, their cyber penetration, their disinformation. These are adversarial issues and we have fought back. You will recall last week that the RE bill, which had uh, issued ransomware stoppages uh, for major US companies, suddenly went off the air. I wonder why, I wonder how. Adversaries have to be confronted. You cannot just say we want to be nice. You agree on where you must agree. You collaborate where you can, but where there's an adversary, and in the case of the spyware, the disinformation, you must be adversarial. And throughout the book, to get back to it, you do examine the US and the then Soviet relationship at the end of the Cold War How do you think our audience and the people who read your book can apply the context of the scenes detailed in Master Negotiator to the present day? I'd like them to focus more on the financial needs of the Soviet Union as it disintegrated. And I'm also going to give a plug for a colleague of mine, Vladimir Zubok, who's coming out with a book called Collapse later this year which details the collapse of the Soviet Union. But let me get back to U.S. interests. The Soviet leadership had no idea how to transition from a centrally command economy to a social democracy or a free market economy. They did not have 
price knowledge of how you reach prices. Supply and demand was not normal practice for them because they had a plan, a goss plan, which said you will produce so many widgets each year. It wasn't a case of whether you needed the widgets or whether there was a shortage or a surplus of widgets. It was that the plan had said you factory owners will produce. So when the West comes and says, now you need to develop free market pricing, they said, how? We should have done more to help them. Not necessarily by US economists going there, but by World Bank economists from different countries helping the Soviets, then turned Russians, adapt to free market economies, which we take for granted. We didn't do it. We didn't provide them with the loans or grants necessary to replace the state ownership of factories. Why? Because we saw that money just going down the drain. There were rumours that the money ended up in North Korea. And as we now know, some entrepreneurial Russians became very, 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 very rich because they bought their state-owned enterprise for a song and then they developed it for their own benefit and they now dominate that area, whether it being gas or oil or timber, etc. So we could have done more in the 1990s to prevent the disintegration, the poverty, the humility of Russia, which is akin to the German poverty and humiliation in the 1930s, or rather the late 20s and early 30s. Germany led to Hitler, Russia led to Putin. That's a really interesting point that you make there. Do you think the lesson for today is is perhaps focusing more on those issues in places where we are trying to promote democracy, where we are trying to promote the American values of self-determination and freedom of expression? Do you think those messages would get through more efficiently if we focused at least initially on teaching the economics and making sure that people don't feel like they have been humiliated. It's a very different situation, but let us take the case of Somalia or Ethiopia. In the case of Ethiopia, they enjoyed a period of democracy. They enjoyed a period of relative political freedoms and an economy which was adapting to Western free market. But then a change took place. And the leadership, having won a Nobel Prize for Peace, became authoritarian. And now seeks to repress and put down those who question or criticize. And the answer in Ethiopia is not to say we're going to send in World Bank experts on it. It is to persuade the people of Ethiopia that their freedoms are more valuable, their ability to express their opinions in the press, to gather in open spaces and criticize the government, are more valuable than economic prosperity. And that's a difficult persuasion. I'm a trustee of Freedom House, and I firmly believe in the values of the United States 
and their export abroad because I think that appeals to men's fundamental need to express themselves and have dignity. But on the other side of the coin are those who say, give up those values and instead rely on the government to provide you with what the necessity that you need. So economic necessities and assurance of a stable income and a minimum insurance sometime outweigh those political freedoms. And the authoritarian leaders recognize that and balance in favor of the economic stability. And that seems to be something we're seeing worldwide, this pitting of the authoritarian-led regimes versus the democracies in the world and the argument that perhaps in some nefarious ways, authoritarians have an easier time because they can control. In a democracy, it's messy. You don't always have control of the outcome. What are your thoughts on that? Democracy is chaotic. We've lived through it for the last five years. But at the same time, tell me another system of government which can ensure that people can express their opinion and avoid having an authoritarian leader impose his or her will upon its people. Where does sovereignty lie? And I would argue that sovereignty lies with people, not with the leadership. Well, as we wrap up here, I want to circle back to your book. There's no way to know what Secretary Baker would do, given all the crises around the world that uh, the Biden administration faces today and must deal with. But what's the lasting lesson from his negotiation skills, from his emphasis on relationships? What are the lasting lessons from a 30,000 foot view that you would want to impart and that you want people to take away from what you've written in the book? Prioritize. And for us today, the priority relationship, a difficult one, is with China, where we will compete where we should, collaborate where we can, and be adversarial where we must. And that is the principal engagement that we're involved in, as Baker was with Moscow and the Soviet Union in those years of 1989 to 1992. But the same tactic, if you like, that you must engage where you can and seek to work together. Remember that China is a member of the P5. Chinese agreement, or at least rejection of the veto, is essential for us to get United Nations approvals. China is a nuclear power. It's a serious potential adversary and is in certain areas in South China Sea. So that's where the priority is and where Baker would give it to. Dr. Diana Villers-Negroponte, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I learned so much from listening to you. Thank you so much. Beverly, thank you for your difficult questions. I enjoyed our conversation. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.